I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi, listeners. Louisa Wells here, head of podcasts at The Telegraph. We thought that as a fan of the Telegraph Rugby podcast, you might be interested in a new show that we've been working on, the Telegraph Women's Sport podcast. We've all enjoyed seeing the rise of coverage in women's sport in recent years, but there's obviously still work to do, which is why we've gathered women from across the sporting world to join Olympic hockey legend Sam Quek to speak about the big issues affecting them, from ACL injuries to activism, motherhood and everything in between. Here's the first episode, which takes a look at success and attempts to get to the bottom of what it takes to become a champion. And it features Red Rose's rugby legend, Maggie Alfonsi. To listen to the rest of the series, search the Telegraph Women's Sport podcast wherever you're listening to this. We really hope you like it. Women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium, and then to go on and win it. It was just insane. A lot of the chatter afterwards was, I really hope it's not the ACL, I hope it's everything else. I'd worked in the Olympic and Paralympic system for a number of years. No one had ever said the word periods, no one had talked about menstrual cycles. I've totally subscribed to best person for the job, but often the best person for the job could well be female, but society isn't ready for that yet. All I'm saying is that everybody should know how to swim. I can't fathom how you can try and say that that is troublemaking or anything like that. Every time I hear somebody talk about investing in women's sport and talking about it as if it's some sort of donation (laughs) or like charity. (laughs) You're welcome. It's just such a weird way to tell me that you're bad at business. Welcome to the Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quek. We've all enjoyed seeing the rise of women's sport in recent years, but there is still work to do. This podcast will give a voice to women in sport as we discuss big issues and talking points. And there will be plenty of insights that you, the listeners, can apply to your own involvement in sport. To kick things off, we're going to be discussing success in sport and attempt to get to the bottom of what it takes to become a champion. Of course, aside from all the hard graft. I'm lucky now to be joined in the studio by two people who know a lot about the pressure and mentality it takes to succeed. The first is a woman who's very used to making history. She won the Rugby World Cup in 2014 and seven straight Six Nations titles with England. And since then, she's become a successful pundit and was the first female player to commentate on men's international rugby. And if that's not enough, she was also the first former Red Rose to be elected as a national member of the RFU Council. Maggie Alfonsi is with us. Thanks for coming along, Maggie. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, Mate, I could have gone on with a longer intro for you there. I don't Everything know why you achieved. What's next then on that list of achievements? Anything in the pipeline coming up? Well, at the moment, the next big thing I've got is uh, is a book, actually. Ooh. yeah, Winning the fight very much around my journey and actually how my journey can inspire others. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the big project, as well as looking after two kids. Mate, I know I was going to say that. How old is the youngest now? Oh, the youngest is six months. Um, so in the thick of it. and it's, then It's full on. It's full on. But the it's eldest? great. Eldest is 
almost three, but I've forgotten in, in terms of months. I think he's 34 months. Oh, no, we stopped counting months after one, in my opinion, anyway. But no, we look forward to unpicking a little bit more of that story in just a minute about your incredible success. But we're going to welcome our second guest now, a sports psychologist who started life as a teacher. She worked with Olympic, Paralympic, World, European and Commonwealth champions in a variety of sports, including tennis, swimming, rugby and cycling, and has her own consultancy, Think, Believe, Perform. Helen Davis, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. And um, again, same as Maggie, the list is just feels endless, the amount of sports, people that you've worked with. But I'm really interested. You started as a teacher and then I decided to, to switch. What was the motivation behind that? Do you know, I always had this feeling of, do I want to be a teacher for the rest of my life? And I think as the years went by, and there were quite a lot of years, 25 of them, I decided that I fancied a change. I wanted something different. And I've always swum all my life in a swimming club. I was training with some world-class triathletes at the time. And I just got really curious about their performance, particularly their swimming, because they were a bit down on their swimming and they liked the cycling and they liked the running. And so I just sort of looked back and thought, well, I've done a psychology degree in the past. Could there be something in the future for me with sport and psychology? And I did a bit of Googling. And before you knew it, I was on a master's course in retraining, which was a bit of a random decision, I have to say, when I had three children going through GCSEs and A-levels. But I loved it and I haven't looked back since. Well, incredibly good at it, of course, with all the successful athletes that you've worked with. But we're going to be talking about the psychology of success with both of you. But before we do, we're going to hear from someone who was involved in one of the greatest English sporting triumphs. It's a woman who was pivotal to the Lionesses Euros win last summer. She's hung up her boots on that incredible high and as England women's record goal scorer. It's the one and only Ellen White. I want to take you back to the Euros. I was there at Wembley. It was genuinely the most exciting football game I've ever been to. And I'm a Liverpool fan. <laughs> but I remember walking up Wembley Way and it was packed and really hoping you guys would really take it home and do it. The emotions I felt, so it must have just been another level for you once that final final whistle went. Especially you, because you'd been a lioness for so many years. I even think even before, before the game was just mental. So we came out of, we were staying at Spurs Lodge, driving on the coach, and we literally just had two helicopters just following us the whole way. And then wow. just coming into Wembley, and we can see Wembley, and it was standstill. So we're having to like manoeuvre around with the coach, and literally yeah. everyone's out of their cars going absolutely insane. You could just see the crowd, and then walking out of Wembley, 87,000. It's what you dream of, isn't it? Iconic, women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium. And then to go on and win it, it was just it was just insane. I don't think I could have ever imagined something like that would happen. Um, so, yeah, it was just mental. It's a proper fairytale. At that point, had you already decided and knew that was going to be your last match? Yeah. I, I kind of been talking about it for like probably about six to eight months, just, just thinking about it. But, yeah, it wasn't a bad end, but it wasn't to be fair. Mate. <laughs> and, of course, like, you know, you've got the most goals for an England female footballer, over 100 caps, I mean, you pretty much have smashed it. And, you know, you go into every tournament thinking and wanting to win. But did you go into the Euros this time thinking we are going to win? Like, I genuinely believe it. Was there a different feeling? Yeah, I think so. I think obviously Serena coming in, a proven winner, someone that we've been waiting for for so many years. And then obviously the pool of talent that we've got was just unbelievable. Like the youth coming through, obviously with a blend of experience. So I think, yeah, I definitely felt 
it felt different. And I think that I, I wanted it so much for the players as well coming in. Um, and obviously, you know, me, Jill, Lucy, like we've been there, done it, like been to so many semi-finals, been lucky enough to go to tournaments and then just missed out. So I think I was probably more emotional getting through that semi-final than I was the final because of that hurdle. I think it was just it was just incredible. And I feel just so lucky, to be honest, to, to have been in that team and to, to have achieved what we achieved. And I just bawled my eyes out after that semi-final. Same again for the final, to be fair. But I think just, just that hurdle of getting to a final was just incredible. Yeah. Was there anything different then? So you talk about the talent, the youngsters. Obviously, the team, the personnel, the manager was different. But I know when we went into Rio 2016, when we got there and did our first training session, they just felt like there was something different. Like we had the perfect first training session and we kind of all just looked at each other and thought, we're on this, we're on this. Did you have a similar type of feel? I think it was just, as Serena came in, just that 10 months, as we were just slowly building, we'll get into grips with the philosophy. The team didn't really change too much in terms of like the whole squad. And we were just gaining like this connection. And then like we got to our base camp and it was just incredible what they'd done for us and what it looked like. It was just like a home away from home. And I think... Obviously, in camp, we were like, yeah, we, we, we can win this. But I think, obviously, to the cameras, we were like, oh, we'd like to make the nation proud, which is obviously what we'd like to. But I think in, in-house, in we were like, we can really do something really special here. And obviously, it being a home nation, the atmospheres were just insane, game to game. It was that first one at Old Trafford. Everyone knew this was different. Like, this was a different tournament like no other for women's football. How did you deal with the pressure, you as an individual, but also as a team? Because there's only you can kind of like shelter yourself away from it, but naturally you see it, don't yeah. you? And you're hearing it on the telly, the papers, the radios. Yeah, I think I think we've always always discussed like pressure is a privilege. So we felt lucky to have that pressure, but then also we couldn't go out and just say we're gonna win it because we'd never won anything before. So I think we're just trying to take each game as it comes and just the momentum just built and the confidence in the team, it just kept building and building and building. So yeah, and obviously the media then gets more and then obviously as you get further on in the tournament then the pressure starts to build, doesn't it? So I think we've spoken about it loads prior to prior to the tournament, a lot about how to deal with the crowds, the media, breathing techniques, that type of thing, if you do feel too much like pressure or anything, how to speak to one another, that communication. So we've done a lot of work beforehand. So we did feel really prepared going into the tournament and know like anything that could happen. I feel like we, we had the tools to, to kind of know what to do. It is weird, that, isn't it? I mean, because we probably say the same. People see the stuff that goes on on the pitch, but all that preparation, the psychology side of things is just as important. What worked for you as an individual? For me, I had to be just like so chilled and relaxed, knowing that if I'd done all my prep, all the homework, then I could just mess about on the bus in the changing room. Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, like, yeah, I think you're doing all the one percenters, aren't you? Making sure you're eating that right food, you're training well, like sleep, and then, yeah, like... I was pretty chilled in the training rooms as well. Obviously, you've got Jill dancing, whatever she's doing, Mary, like dead serious, music going on, mental and stuff. So, yeah, everyone had their own processes, but we all understood each other's processes that would help them perform at the highest level. So, yeah, I was pretty relaxed, to be honest. I feel like we kind of done all the work, so we knew yeah. we knew that we were in the right place. That's what it is, isn't it? It's like understanding each other. And like you say, there's the quiet ones in the corner, the ones who are loud. I think that's a really special place to be. So now you're a mum. What would you say is the biggest thing that you miss about playing? I'd say the banter, to be honest. I'd say I miss, like, the girls and everything. 
I don't know if I miss the training. I used to like the high of training, you know, like afterwards. Yeah. I don't necessarily miss doing all the running and stuff like that, but the high and the endorphins you get from training and like playing football, being part of a team. But I feel really content on how I ended, having achieved what we did in the summer, what I achieved with England and the trophies and stuff. I feel very content and feel very lucky. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people potentially don't have that that fairy tale ending. You know, they've had injuries and they've had to stop or something else has, has kind of taken them away from the game, whereas it was my decision. So I felt very mm. content, like, retiring in the summer. What about on the pitch? So obviously you missed the banter, the running. You're a little bit like like me, you just when you win, you're just like, yes. Yeah, it, it's, you, I just don't think you can ever re- replicate it, can you? So say, like, yeah, yeah, obviously doing, you know, a bit of punditry, like commentary or or doing speaking opportunity is not quite the same high, is it? It is, it is fun, but you just can't, winning and scoring, you just can't ever get that high again. Although you feel content, do you think you'll be watching the Lionesses at the World Cup thinking, oh, I wish I was part of that, but then you still have that contentment in your in your heart? No, I think I'd be quite happy sitting with a bag of crisps watching, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> what flavour, though? <laughs> Salt and vinegar, they're pretty, pretty boring. Oh, yes, girl after my own heart. <laughs> oh, what a legend. Ellen White, uh, giving us a little bit of an insight there to what it took to become European champions. And Maggie, I saw you, you know, smiling away to certain points. And one particular bit was the changing room bit. And obviously you're from a team sport as well. How did you prepare for big events? And was the changing room similar? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting hearing Ellen speak and also, you know, your journey as well, being in a a team, a hockey team. I just remember the change room like Ellen highlighted, different personalities. So there would be, in, in my change room, uh, Heather Fisher and Nolly Waterman. They were they were what you call sunshine yellow. So if you do the, the insights, psychology... We um, did the insights. Yeah, everyone, everyone does it. Um, they, were, they were yellow. So you know that they're going to be very jovial, singing, basically getting on everyone's nerves, but that was their personality and you, you didn't restrain it. And I was very much, I guess you would say, I'm red. I was, you know, I, I was in the corner, focused on my task ahead, what I was going to do. I'd read through the the program of the game, see my see my picture, see other people's notes, and that's how I'd get myself focused for the game. And I guess I, I'd want to try and approach that white line fever. So when I crossed the white line onto the field, I was on my job. That was that was my focus. So I loved the the changing room experience. Again, different personalities, different ways of interacting and actually understanding everyone's in their own space and you've just got to let them have their space. And, you know, there'll be some people in the in the toilets maybe feeling a bit sick because their anxiety is mm-hmm. really, you know, reaching to a point where they can't control it. So it, it, the key thing is about how you let people have their space and how you support people if you need to. But then at the same time, when you get over that white line, we've all got our focus and all, all got our job to do. Yeah, definitely. And it's finding that harmony between all these different characters. And you touched upon the colours here. Helen, I'm going to come to you because you know exactly what we're talking about. I can't remember, the, what was it called? It, there was four colours. There was... Yellow, green, red and blue. Can you talk us through this model, what it is and how it works? I mean, there are many different models for personality and, you know, different teams do different things. But basically, you know, they can fall into a set of four, I guess. And and yeah, you, it, it's remarkable when you speak to individuals how people are like, oh, that's me. Yeah, that's me. That's exactly what I do. And that, that, we, that we do sit in this comfort zone of our personality kind of profile and that's the way that we 
particularly under pressure, can can fall back into. And I think when you work with teams, it's all about learning, as you say, about other people, what they're like under pressure, what their personalities are, supporting them with it, but understanding that it's different for different people. And there could be somebody being sick in the changing rooms. There might be somebody dancing to music. But as you yeah. say, once they cross the, the white line, they go out there and, and, and they're ready to perform. People just do it in different ways. Yeah, we um, we had to appreciate as well because naturally people used to be quite embarrassed of red uh, because that was quite fiery, structured, and then it was like the cool blue. And then it was like, no, no, it's not that they're lazy or too laid back. And it is just having this appreciation, isn't it, as part of a team. So what's your colour? Wait, aren't you Mine, too? I think, because you obviously had... We say conflicts, but it's not like a nasty conflict, but it would be like, I would probably conflict with you, Maggie, because I was one of the sunshine yellow and the green was like, it was earthy green, it was called, I want to say. So I was a combination of the two. Caring, so you were caring. A little bit, a little bit of caring, but more sunshine, like, you know. People like you, eh? Yeah, a bit annoying, a bit annoying. (laughs) But again, the conflict wasn't a bad thing, but it was the realisation and almost respect and trust that actually, you know, everybody was in the best place they needed to be to perform well. And again, just hearing Ellen say that, there's so much that is taken into consideration. It's not just one performance. It's not just one tournament. Maggie, for that 2014 World Cup win, incredible achievement with the Red Roses. Was there anything that you felt was different in that team? Like Ellen said there that something felt different. Yeah. So Ellen touched on some really interesting points there. She talked about, you know, the past experiences where they've not necessarily failed, but look, they have they had stumbled over certain hurdles. And especially when you're going into a World Cup, a European final, you know, there the team has different experiences. There are people who are carrying baggages where they have lost in previous semifinals or finals. There are people who are, this is their first time they've ever got to a final, so they're just excited. And then you've got those in between who, you know, not quite sure what they're feeling. You know, what were for you? Us, I, you? I, was, I was experienced. I, I carried a lot of baggage, but I was I was ready to offload this baggage. I, I, I knew I was going to retire, so I wanted our team to win and I knew our team could do it. So we had been, well, me and previous, uh, many other of my teammates had lost two finals prior to that. Right. So um, if I'm honest, I, I truly believe the failure enabled us to to achieve success. So going into that World Cup in 2014, what I felt was different, I would say we had a better understanding of the word team. You know, we understood each other. We had such good emotional connections. We understood each other's whys. You know, we talk a lot about whys, you know, what's our driver? Why do we want to be there? Why do we want to play for England? Why do we want to win the World Cup? I truly felt like I went into that World Cup understanding each and every one person in that team that I felt like I didn't want to win the World Cup for me. I wanted to win the World Cup for Heather Fisher, for Nolly Waterman, for, you know, Kate Daly-McLean. I wanted to win mm. it for every person in that in that room, in that team. That was a difference where I'd say the previous World Cups, you almost felt like you're an individual part of a team where the collective was the key thing that shone through in 2014. Sure. Yeah, I think being part of the Rio team in 2016 as well, we had probably a very similar situation. 2014 wasn't great. We had cliques in the squad. It was a very similar squad. People were there with their own motivation. People didn't want to play for the coach, for example. Some people were annoyed. Um, And we had to go through the rough and the understanding of each other to get to the highs. I mean, as a sports psychologist, where do we even start from a team point of view now when you've got a group of, say, 30 women who are all at different points in their career, 
all different motivations. And it's your job <laughs> to kind of sort everyone out and get them on the same page. Well, it's interesting because you say it's the job of the sports psychologist. I think it's the job of everybody. It's, it's the job it's of every single person within the environment. You know, yes, the sports psychologist can be there to help, but, you know, you, you can't make certain individuals do certain things. And I think the environment is so important there and the culture that's created with every single person, that every single person buys into what the motivation is, what the purpose is, why they're doing it. And as you say, the relationships, I think, is absolutely key as well. You know, the relationships that you have, the memories that you're building together all play a massive part. Yeah, I remember we had a brilliant psychologist, Andrea, who literally came in and was like, right. And people talk about, well, how do you get to that to that place? And it is literally sitting in a room and talking different exercises. I remember one particular one where you had to be really vulnerable and you had to sit down, think about actually what do you look like on a good day, which is probably harder actually than actually talking about what do you look like on a bad day because no one likes to talk about the positives. And you had to be vulnerable and talk in front of your teammates. Are these the type of things and exercises that you have to do to get to that place? For me, having conversations should never be underestimated in the environment. And it's so difficult because the timetable's so full, training, S&C, gym, you know, all these physical things Mm. that are going on around. But please don't ever underestimate the importance of conversation because I find that's, in my experience anyway, has been where the best outcomes come, where time has been dedicated to players sitting down together, talking through things. There doesn't necessarily need to be an agenda. I remember speaking to Catherine Granger years ago when I first did did, did, did my um, training. I went to listen to her talk and I I, I went, I said, you know, you are so experienced. You've won all these medals. You know, what would you say is the most memorable thing about high performance for you that has the biggest impact? And she said conversations, you know, in a coffee shop. It doesn't have to be in a formalised workshop, but just spending time with each other, getting to know each other and discussing things and seeing where the conversation goes. You learn so much. It's just communication, isn't it? Absolutely. It's about building trust. Like we underestimate how we build trust. Look, I was always told that trust is like dripping tap. It takes ages to build up. But if you break it, it's like a flood. And and we should spend more time doing that in a team environment because when you've develop that vulnerability all of a sudden you have such greater connection that you feel like no one can break down those walls that you've created as as a collective team so yeah conversations building the trust that you become vulnerable that you know you're in a safe space and all of a sudden you've got that shared goals and then you achieve your goals it is it's um, a really special place to be in having been on both sides of it I remember when you go in and do talks and it, people say well what do you mean by trust and it's trusting that people are doing things with the right intention so for example there was a bit of a phase we went through was well why why is she going to graduation and I'm not allowed to go to graduation or actually why are they taking the day off because I was in the same situation and I didn't take the day off and that was a, not a great place to be in but once we had those conversations understanding and trust that actually they were doing it for their best interest, so they could think of their best to the team. That's when it it became a really nice understanding atmosphere. One of the things that stood out to me that Ellen said was pressure is a privilege. And that's such a nice way to, to think about it. And when it comes to pressure, it's really easy to say, isn't it? Well, you know, I'm, I'm under pressure. Do you feel the pressure? Do you feel pressure to win? What is pressure, Ellen? Yeah. Because... Do you know, it's a word we use all the time, but actually, yeah. what is it? Well, yeah, pressure, it, it, it's a perception of how you feel about something and it comes from within. So often we blame, oh, the environment, we blame the competition, but it's actually, it's how you you are thinking about it yourself. So 
pressure being of privilege, that's a thought of how you're viewing pressure. And when you see it as something as a privilege, it makes you think rather than pressure being bad, it's like, well, actually, maybe pressure's quite good for me. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that I work with with athletes is, you know, what do you view as pressure and how are you talking to yourself about it? What are you saying in terms of your self-talk that's giving you those feelings of pressure? Is it helping those feelings of pressure or is it not helping those feelings of pressure could you talk about it in a different way and if you did what might that look like people that you think deal with pressure well what does that look like to you what do you notice them doing and so if you start looking at yourself and well when do I get those feelings of pressure and trying to understand what it is that's giving you those often it's the way that you think about it so plan go back to preparation which we just talked about and Ellen talked about a lot as well preparation is so key for things so you can plan for how you're going to deal with pressure. So is it just a case of a shift of mindset? Give us an example of then what some athletes might well, say. Well, it can be. I mean, one of the things that I like to talk about pressure with athletes is, is challenge and threat states, which is how you view something, whether you view it as a challenge or whether you view it as a threat. And generally speaking, you know, if you view something in a threat mindset, you're you're looking at the uncertainties of the situation, you know, the, the danger it might be to your self-esteem if you don't win, what are other people going to think about it? It's going to be really painful at the end of the race, you know, that generally you're looking at it from a threat perspective. Mm. Whereas when you have a challenge mindset, you're focusing on your resources that you have in order to cope with the demands of your situation that you've got. So I'm focusing on what things build my self-confidence, you know, what things do I have control over, what are the things that I would need to be doing in order to help myself perform well. And just those little shifts in thinking from a challenge to a threat mindset can be all that it can need for somebody to actually change how they feel. I suppose it can be internal and external, isn't it? Maggie, for you, did you feel the pressure going into 2014? So look, I love that quote, that pressure is a privilege. Ellen didn't finish it off. It says embrace it. And that was said by Billie Jean King, famous USA ladies tennis player. And for me, what I love about that quote, and I did use that quote going into 2014, was like Helen's already highlighted, it was about changing my mindset. It was about reframing the word pressure, changing my language. And going into 2014, I did feel, and many of my teammates felt that pressure on our shoulders. I mean, you go to two World Cup finals previously, you finish second, third time, you do hope there's going to be a bit of luck on your side. But the pressure started to build up because you reach a point where you go, I hope that we're not going to be a nearly team. I hope Mm. that we're not going to be remembered for being a silver medal team you know nothing wrong with silver medal don't get me wrong but after you've got quite a few of them in your in your house you reach a point where you really do want a gold so we definitely all felt the pressure and I felt it more so because I knew I was coming to the end of my career but also you know I had a nice reputation that people saw me as Maggie the machine the the brilliant tackler um I still am the brilliant tackler. yeah I was gonna say he's the laugh. <laughs> so I felt the pressure but I worked with our sports psychologist, Cherry Daly, spent a lot of time with her to change my thinking. So every time I had negative thoughts, you know, self-doubt about my ability, I basically spoke to her. I did a lot of making sure if I had negative thoughts about my day or how I performed, I would write it down. I put it in an email. And she said, at the end of the day, just send it to me. You know, mm-hmm. instead of instead of feeling like you need to talk to somebody who maybe might not understand it or may not receive it very well, just write it down in an email, maybe read through it, reflect on it, and then send it to me. I might not give you a response, but at least you've got it 
off your chest and I'm like actually that and it worked so well it was cathartic you know I definitely felt like I was able to release it and let go of it if I had negativity but then I came back stronger the next day because I'd emptied the tank almost yeah yeah I mean self-awareness for me is absolutely key you know sometimes people are, oh, I feel pressure but I don't really know why and it's like as you say delving into and being curious about well what, what is it exactly is it you know because it's the end of my career that's why I'm feeling more pressure is it because I don't know that I'm going to be selected or, or whatever it might be there are all kinds of things which elevate those feelings of pressure and once you identify it then you can say okay well what can I then do about it how can I help and say there are many different strategies that you can try and, and see what works for you. Helen do you feel pressure? Oh of course. Who do you talk to when you yeah, feel pressure? I do you know. know. Anyone. I will talk to anyone. I, I, I am definitely wear my heart on my sleeve kind of person. Um, I like to share things and, and just by talking it out with anyone who listen. Send me an <laughs> um, email. Send yeah. me an email. <laughs> Get off just. <laughs> I, I always think as well winning when you're at the top of your sport you've almost got like a target on your back and then that becomes a pressure of the conversation of winning after winning and Maggie to be part of an England team that wins consecutive Six Nations surely you've got experience of that mindset how do you deal with you know being at the top and and staying at the top yeah especially when it came to Six Nations it's hard because you reach a point where you go you don't know anything different. You, you accept winning and you take it in your stride. So it's brilliant developing this winning mindset where you step on the field, even when you're behind on the scoreboard, you still believe and know that you can win. So that is a brilliant feeling. Not everyone can feel that. You know, when I talk about rugby, especially when we talk about men's rugby in the Six Nations, lots of people will talk about Italy and they always lose. And they reach a point where you develop a losing mindset that you don't understand or, or know what it feels like or understand what you need to do to to, to win so you develop this mindset where taking acceptance isn't it oh, yeah. it's okay we lost <laughs> yeah and almost like that, so that becomes you you continue to go down this downward spiral where those who win almost always believe that they can win it's, it's you can see it in people and you can see it in teams as well who have that 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 mindset i think i've been part of a team like that before where even though you go like one or two nil down playing hockey you, you, not a problem we'll still win your gb team were amazing i mean god no one could stop you guys but- like being part of so many different teams, again, yeah, you sit back and you think, actually, what what was it? Could you pinpoint it? And you can never pinpoint it. There are so many ingredients, aren't there, that go together to make yeah. high performance. And and as you say, really difficult, but it's collectively normally that's what ends up. And you say you can't put your finger on it, but it's like, hang on, there is something special going on here. Mm. Yeah, if you could, it'd be the Holy Grail, wouldn't it? I think everybody would want a piece oh, of it. Yeah. Bottle it up and sell it, wouldn't you? Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Okay, we've talked about pressure. And again, another word that floats around when it comes to sports psychology is mindset. What does it mean then, mindset? I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask you the same the same question. What does winning mindset look like and what is it? Well, again, being a typical psychologist, I'll probably say, well, it's different for each person, right? Because, again, there isn't one set phrase that would say that this is what a winning mindset is. You know, generally speaking, there are some things that you think would be factored in with a winning mindset. You know, belief, Maggie just mentioned there, you know, having that internal belief that actually that you can achieve what you want to achieve. And, and often people can be in a place where maybe they're not winning medals, they're not doing well, they maybe they're injured, but... Deep inside, they know that they have a belief that they can be successful if that's what they choose to do. So I think belief, yeah, really, really important. And and then the next stage is what actions are you going to take? What actions are you going to take to 
help yourself believe that you have a winning mindset? What are those small things that happen every day, those basics that you need to do that are going to help you to achieve those, you know, those, those process goals in effect? And another thing I would say about a winning mindset is praising yourself for what you do, celebrating your strengths. Um, so we often, don't do that enough, do we? Well, so Just what, even people mm, in general. Exactly. And and so often in high performance, it's, well, what, what aren't we doing right? You know, what aren't we doing right? What do we need to improve on the whole time? Well, actually, the foundation of success comes from what you're already good at. So let's look at that. Let's look at what those strengths are and how can you then build on that as a platform to move forward? It's, you're in a far greater position, I think, if you do that. Work ethic, you know, yeah. train like a champion, believe that you can win, play to win, you know, see yourself being successful. Mm. These are all mindset ways of thinking that will all help feed into your self-confidence, which we know is a key ingredient for high performance. Again, it's a collective group of things that I think come together to make that winning mindset. And, you know, when you often see people who are interviewed after a win, usually you speak to different people and they come up with different things. Mm. I suppose it all filters down, doesn't it? Where you've got a winning mindset at the top, you can't just go straight there, can you, and say, well, I'm going to win. But Because you always think, well, have I done the training? Have I in the right thing? Have I drank enough? For you, Maggie, what was the most important thing for you to get to that winning mindset, to go onto the pitch and think, I'm fully prepared, we're going to win today? I would say, to, to follow on from what Helen said, it was the belief. So something that I, you know, I talk about quite a lot, it's the leading with your strengths, it's understanding your strengths and an awareness of your strengths. So I was always told in my sporting career and in my professional career that there are no such thing as weaknesses, only underdone strengths. And once I had that mindset that, I've always got strengths. I am incredibly good at whatever task it may be. I've got those strengths. And yeah, I might have the odd underdone strength, but I'm going to work on it and it's going to get really strong. But I tried to, and I still do it today, lead with my strengths. So I think that's what developed my, I would say, my winning mindset. But also the other thing that I talk a lot about is stepping out of my comfort zone. That was really important. Learning to almost embrace failure. It's not not a bad thing to experience failure. You actually learn, you become more innovative, you create. And a quote that I very much live by now is uh, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's so powerful. Now I don't see stepping out of my comfort zone as a bad thing. Actually, I will grow, I will stretch. My comfort zone will become much bigger that I'll be willing to put myself out in other scenarios, other situations. So I would say those two things have been the, the key to my winning mindset. And, and you know, winning mindset isn't just something you do on the field, like you've just touched on as well. We all unfortunately look at our weaknesses and actually how do we create a winning mindset on the sporting field, in the office, in the boardroom? You know, how do we all have that same attitude? Because I truly believe we can all learn from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I really take what you say on board there, Maggie. For me, you know, those kind of three cornerstone things of, of mindset we talked about already, the self-awareness, understanding yourself and what you really know to be true about you. And then accepting that, you know, accepting actually... I do have strengths in some areas and maybe I find other things harder. And once you have that acceptance, you then move on to what you were talking about is self-development. Is okay, how do I then develop from that acceptance that there are some things that I can work on here? And I, I love hearing what you say about that curiosity of, you know, how can I improve my performance? Even if it's something that feels quite small, it just it's just how can I develop? How can I get better? And again, I think that all falls into winning mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I, was, I think it was it Michael Owen uh, who said about his warm-up. He went from a mindset of thinking, if I had a bad warm-up, he was going to have a bad game. And he turned it around to say, if I've had a bad warm-up, that's great because I've got all the 
out of my system. If I've had a great warm-up, fab, I'm going to have a great game. So either way, regardless of how we warmed up, it didn't really affect how he was going to play. He was always going to put in a good performance. Do you want to add on to that? It's a bit like, you know, we talk about the winning mindset. It's a bit like that growth mindset as well when we talk about how we view our intelligence and our ability. And Carol Dweck, wasn't she? She's the one who came up with that, the the concept. And it's about understanding the journey rather than the destination. Mm. And it takes a while, I think, athletes and people to understand that it's more about the journey, not the destination. And when you start to get to grips with that, all of a sudden you want to improve, you want to get better, you want to celebrate your successes. And and, and it's you start to enjoy the journey and then all of a sudden you get that winning mindset where you go, oh, I've got there now, I want to I want to yeah. keep going. Massively, and it'll happen on all different levels, like you say, from elite all the way through to people who are just starting sport. And I'm aware that, you know, myself, Maggie, we're in teams, but obviously a great team is made up of some great individuals and people who are listening will be taking part in individual sports. Of course, you're still a keen swimmer and you still compete as well, don't you? So from an individual perspective... I was very much motivated by, I'm going to get out early, train my backside off because I didn't want to let my team down. As much as I enjoyed it, that was my motivation being part of a team. For you as an individual and for people who you've worked with, how do individual athletes motivate themselves to get out on those dark mornings in the middle of a bleak, cold winter? What is it that gets them out of bed? I tend to talk to people about motivation on a continuum you know and we move up and down this continuum the whole time so you say on a dark morning you might be right at the end of the continuum where it's like I just don't want to go out you know and I don't want to do it and then some days you may be very very excited so understanding your motivation personality if you like you know what am I like what are the things that push my buttons at certain times because then when you're not feeling so motivated you can then draw upon the things that you know that can help boost you in certain areas. I, I know, for example, you know, swimming for me, I'm at that intrinsic motivation, that internal motivation. I, I love it. I know I feel better for doing it. So, so what's your little voice inside your head saying when the alarm goes off and you're like, oh. Well, do you know, for me, I know it sounds a bit crazy, but when the alarm goes off, that's my best time of day to go swimming. So I get up and at the moment I'm going to an outdoor Lido in Cambridge. Most of the time the sun is shining, I have to say, and it is the best start to the day. So actually I do spring out of bed. I'm an early I'm an early mm-hmm. bird anyway, having done well, years, of swimming, you years early, of swimming. Early or late. <laughs> I'm an early bird, but with two kids, oh, I'm an early, 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 <laughs> early bird. Honestly, I'm always up throughout the night. I, uh, yeah, I don't know what sleep is. Yeah, I, I love it. You know, so I genuinely love it. So I, I, I find that an easy thing to do to get mm. up and go swimming. And I come back and I think, right, I'm ready to start the day. Fantastic. Ask me to go for a run in the morning. It's a very different story. I can look out of the window and be like, oh, it looks like it's going to rain. You know, the cloud, the clouds are really I'll, I'll heavy. I'll do it once I've tidied the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and therefore I have to tap into other things to help me get out the door. And that might be, well, actually, I know that this is good for me or actually I have entered a race and I think the run is going to help me. So learning about whereabouts you're sitting on that motivation continuum, what buttons you need to tap into is something that I work on with athletes and, and help them with on the difficult days. And so they understand themselves. So what about people who may be listening who are just starting to get active you know, on the elite level who think, oh, if I don't do that session, I'm going to let my my team down or I'm not going to finish, you know, in the top five of my event coming up. Have you got any tips? Well, again, again, I I mean, you know, looking at what it is that you think 
when you got out the door last time, what was it that helped you do that? Was it that you agreed to phone up a friend and say, can we do this together? And, you, and you do it together. That is 100% me. Yeah. But again, it, that, that's a great tactic, right? Because you know if somebody's going to be waiting on the corner for you at two o'clock in the afternoon because that's what you've agreed, then it's probably going to make you go. So when have you been successful at it before? And do that again. One of my one of the things that I do now is I tell my husband oh, I'm going to go for a run tonight. So he says to me, "Have you been for your run yet?" And I'm like, "No," and it makes me feel really bad. <laughs> so he'll go, "Have you been for your run yet?" And I'm like, "No." And then I go out again. It's just a different motivation for me. I mean, guilt can be a motivator, Literally. right? You know, and, and it's funny. I, I always remember being at the end of a, a half marathon once, and this guy crossed the line. He looked terrible. I mean, he looked absolutely awful. Stumbled across the line, and he went, "I've got the t-shirt," you know. And, and you you could see that his motivation was literally a t-shirt. And you thought you could have gone and bought a t-shirt, yeah. you know. But that's probably what kept him going. And 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 great. You, you use what you need to use to help you do whatever you want to do. Go on, Maggie. What's yours? Wait, did you do your run in the end? I'm, I'm intrigued. Did you do your no. run? Yeah, I did, I did. Okay, well, I love but it. I'm, like, it you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of digress and say I've got two young kids. I think I've been doing running up and down the stairs, running around after them. Do you know, I, I honestly think it's interesting. What I love about being in the team, as you would know, Sam, is that you lean on others to, to get motivation and energy. So mm. if I feel like I'm lacking, I know there's someone in my team that can produce that or can give me that. What's been hard is since retiring and then actually when you now want to exercise, who am I leaning on to get my energy? So for me, I actually... I did CrossFit. So what's great about CrossFit is social training, if, if anything. And mm. you sign in and if, you're, if you don't turn up to that session, someone else has missed out on having that place. So you feel guilty. Yeah. But then also there's people waiting for you. So I kind yeah. of feel like... Be here at this time. Yeah. yeah. So again, being accountable to somebody else makes you feel like, right, I have to do it. So I'm finding my energy in other ways. But I do miss being part of a team because that really does feel like you can almost take their energy or lean on them if you need to. And it's good to have other motivators. Definitely. I mean, I, I certainly see the dynamics in teams of people going to people when they know they need a bit of energy or just have a quiet word with somebody and say, look, feels a bit flat today. Could could you just raise the volume a bit? And, you, yeah, there's a few people that I'm sure you can think of in sport that are like that. And, and, and then suddenly the whole atmosphere can be changed just by a few words and a bit of energy. Plus, I need some sort of ball to chase after or person to chase after. I struggle to pound in pavements. I'm easily distracted, should we say. Is that what you do when you need to run faster? Just throw a hockey ball down the yeah, road and just anything. keep <laughs> just keep ball, chasing ball. <laughs> Stop running after ball, a little cat. Rugby. Rugby. It's yeah, never too late. No chance. <laughs> so people have different motivations, whatever it may be. One of my massive motivations, though, used to be feedback. So it would be like, okay, Sam, you need to, for example, get faster. So then that would motivate me to get stronger in the gym, just push myself that extra little bit further. Helen, what part of your role covers feedback to athletes? Because for some athletes, they find that mega useful. For example, I love feedback, whether it's in sport, work, whatever I do. Whereas I know that there were some other people I worked with or I've played with who aren't great at taking feedback and they take it in a very negative way. How do you put that in place with athletes and turn it into a positive if it's not already? Well, again, I'd say it's about knowing your athletes, you know, really knowing what their personalities, what makes them tick. And you're absolutely right, you know, external feedback from somebody else can be very, very powerful. The concern that I would have about somebody who relies solely on external feedback is that it's an uncontrollable. You know, you, yeah. you cannot make somebody give you feedback. And actually, if you did make somebody give you feedback, you probably feel it wasn't genuine. So it's, it's, the, it's the off-the-cuff comment that you suddenly get that's a surprise that can carry so much weight and so much power. And that's why I would always say to athletes, great, if you're somebody that likes external feedback, but you can't expect it. Mm. So 
what can you do yourself to give yourself feedback? So if you're somebody that really needs praise and encouragement and maybe you're not getting it in your environment, what can you do to help yourself with that? And also I would say seek out people who you know will give you feedback and ask for it. If you know you're somebody who who likes to hear it, have a conversation with somebody, go to somebody who you know can do it. For somebody who doesn't like that feedback and can take it the wrong way, it can derail people. You know, it can be very powerful in the same way. Again, controllables, uncontrollables, you never know what somebody might say to you and the effect it might have on you. But where your power lies is how you respond to it. So how you respond to that feedback is actually going to determine how you feel about it. So... In an elite environment, so many different people, so many different personalities, you probably are going to hear things that maybe that you don't like or don't make you feel great. How you respond to it is key. And again, for me, that goes back to preparation. How do I reframe that? How do I think about that? How do I make myself feel better if I've just heard something that's that's not good for me? I don't want it to derail my performance. So what can I do to help myself? Have you ever found yourself in any of those situations, Maggie? Well, throughout my career, quite similar to you, I actually really liked feedback. I didn't mind it. I think because I was so confident in myself that I took on the feedback and I and I turned it into action. As I got older in my career, I reached a point where I would give my own feedback. So I would say to the coach, this is how I feel my performance went. And actually, when I retired and became more of a coach myself, I wouldn't give feedback. I'd ask the player, how do you think it went? What would you do differently? So I became more of a, you know, a coach in the sense of asking those open-ended questions that you got them to reflect on their own performance. I think, you know, now that I'm, I'm retired and I work in the professional world, if I want feedback, I'll come and ask for it. Mm-hmm. It's when people give you feedback when you didn't actually seek it and then all of a sudden they've derailed you you're like I didn't ask for your feedback but because I've said it to you take it in and all of a sudden it it does have an impact on you so now I'm quite selective on taking feedback and receiving it on the field you know feedback was kind of like I've I've taken the feedback and I can go away and improve on my left hand passing my right hand passing and all the other stuff that goes with playing rugby broadcasting is a little bit different I've learned now I take the feedback but at the same time I've got to believe in myself I can't lean on it too much I think, like you say, there's only so much that you can control and it comes back to the external, internal. It's how you take that and run with it. I mean, it's the power of words. You know, I've seen so many athletes that a coach has said something that the coach probably forgot the second they said it, but it has impacted them for days, months you know, a long, long time. It, it really can be extremely powerful, which is why I would say it's knowing your athlete. Mm. So knowing what they can take in terms of feedback or what you may have to rephrase it in a different way for some people compared to other people in your team, you know. And um, if you're wanting to get the best out of people, you know, you're, you're wanting them, as you say, to take actions as a result of feedback, not be fearful because they think they're doing something wrong. It's the worst when you would have coaches who had different levels of feedback. So some coaches would probably say two or three words and you're like, oh, God, those two or three words are so... Was I good? Was I not good? Or it might just be a look. Um, yes. Graham Smith, my old former England uh, forwards coach, used to give you the look. And you know if you've had a good or bad game or if you need to you know, sort it out. Where Gary Street, our other England our head coach, he would very much have a, a more of a dialogue with you. So it's, it's understanding your coach as well and understanding what level of feedback they would give you and actually how you interpret it. I think that's important. Yeah. For success and to become a successful athlete, that's great. That's what everyone sees. But ultimately, those moments don't come without the bad times, the slog, the deselections, the injuries, all the stuff that goes beforehand. Maggie, is there anything in your sporting journey where, you know, you just thought, I can't do it anymore and that mindset just felt so far away? 
Yeah, Sam, if you buy my book, you'll find all this out. Available in all good bookshops. Do you know, there were many times in my career, like yours, Sam, and like yours, Helen, you know, where there's just been moments where I've had to dig deep because I've had some really challenging experiences. You know, injuries, every athlete would talk about injuries. But I actually say that probably wasn't my worst. I think the challenges I had were dealing with... I guess losses, you know, that's hard. Mm. And, and when I mean losses, I mean, you know, losing big games like a World Cup and, and trying to bounce back. I mean, obviously we're not in Olympic sport, but World Cups still happen every four years. And just thinking when you've lost, time. oh, when you've lost something, you think, oh God, four years. I mean, four years is a very long time. And people, you don't really appreciate it until you start to realise that, you know, there's many cycles. There's times when you can be deselected. There's other players who are coming through who are young, who are exciting. So I would say that's when I found myself at my at my deepest and I've had to really pull myself through and, you know, losing form. You know, there's times when you lose form and, again, there's someone else out there who's snapping on your heels and who's at that point could be better than you. So I used to work really hard during my career to make sure that even though when I had difficult times, you know, where do I go to get myself back to work my best? So for me, I used to set positive affirmations. You know, that was very much a, a, a statement that kind of reminded me of my strengths. Um, did you write those down? I did. I used to, so when I played rugby, you know, you can have strapping, the same like hockey. I had to put a strapping around my wrist and I forgot what my affirmation was, but it's something about... You've forgotten? Yes, something about oh, I'm, Maggie. <laughs> I'm strong, I'm physical, I'm gorgeous and I'm, no, I'm, and I'm athletic or something like that. It was, it was one of those words where it was just all positive and there were words that made me move. So I, I had a positive affirmation that I would say to myself quite frequently. Mm-hmm. My home uh, had quotes that were all positive words from various athletes and impressive, influential people in the world. And again, I had my why, you know, what was my driver and understanding, you know, the person or the family member. That's why I get up every day and that's why I keep moving forward. So I, I had those kind of three things that sort of I would go back to when I realised things were becoming very, very difficult in my career. Yeah, I, I had a similar one in uh, 2014. Went from captain in a squad, Commonwealth Games silver medal, and then going and getting quite a bad injury and then not being able to get into the team a year out, just yeah. over a year out from yeah. Rio. And I'd missed out on selection for Beijing and London. And I just thought, this is so embarrassing. It's mm. mortifying all the people who said, what, you're playing hockey? It's just a waste of time. It's not a real job. I just thought I'm going to prove all those people right. And I literally remember being sat in the kitchen at the dinner table with my boyfriend, now husband, Tom. And he said, listen, I'll back you whatever you want to do. And I was on the verge of quitting. I remember we had the squad would come back from the qualifiers, which they were unbeaten. Everybody was flawless. And I thought, great, (laughs) I'm not going to replace anyone. But I had three weeks between that and the selection for Europeans to get back into the squad. And I remember thinking, right, three more weeks. And I made sure that when I got back with the squad, I was the fittest, the strongest, because I had all this time away from the squad to do all those things in my control. And it was the biggest learning curve. I got selected for the Europeans and never looked back. And I realised at that point, when I focused on things that I could control, that's what worked best for me. So your mindset, being faster, stronger, you know, you can't think about whether you're going to get selected, what he's thinking, she's thinking, what selection there from Scotland, there from Wales, they're going to get selected. I was wasting so much energy on all of that and not controlling what I could control. And when I learned that, I literally was probably a little bit late in my career, (laughs) but I finally got there. Helen, how do you help an athlete who may find themselves in a rut like me had I not come out of it in that, that three weeks? How would you help an athlete get back to where they need to be? 
I mean, yeah, it's, it's great hearing hearing you both talk about your experiences. You know, coping with those massive disappointments is really, really difficult. And, and again, you know, it, it's different for every person. I think it's really important after a really big disappointment to take some time initially just to kind of be with your own thoughts. You don't have to talk about it straight away if you don't want to, but I do think it is important to go through a process where you are dealing with it and, and dealing with the emotions that you're feeling around it. It's almost like it. a grieving process, it isn't is, it? It is. And, yeah, and, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if you do go through that, however uncomfortable it might be, you actually will move on quicker from it. But a lot of people don't want to go there in the beginning mm-hmm. because it's too uncomfortable. They don't, they don't want to face it and they mm-hmm. don't like to face it. So it can be difficult. It can be really hard to talk about it. But the more that you do and use your support networks around you, Try and process what you have been through, process what those emotions are and how it made you feel. You you do get to a place where you start focusing on the things that you control, start taking positive actions, start being able to feel that you're moving forward from it. And it's something that you're so immersed in an elite environment and, and you know, focusing on that one goal that actually having a wider perspective and a wider network can then help you in those times of disappointment where you have other things in your life where you can draw upon those things too and recognise that actually it is a moment in time. Sport changes very, very quickly. The next tournament is going to be around the corner and actually where do I want to be when it comes to that place? You know, I, I'm not diminishing it at all. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. But but the more you can encourage people, you know, teammates to talk about it, more likely you are to process it quicker. Do you know what helped me get out of some difficult times was, like you touched on, surrounding yourself with good people. So actually when I became feel like I was really like struggling I would actually hang around with friends who weren't involved in rugby whatsoever they weren't really bothered about an injury I mean it doesn't affect their life and actually it was really nice you know I didn't talk about rugby didn't talk about an injury didn't talk about not being selected Mm. so they pulled me out of this hole and it felt like I was normal in, in, in a way but when I was surrounded by everyone in that rugby environment I felt like I could see what I was missing out on and it really pulled me down even more so so I made sure I surrounded myself with good people who weren't part of the sport to pull me out and and talk and be distracted if anything well exactly that you know that they they can just talk about other things and that life is still continuing and they're still having fun and still doing things and actually you can be part of that as well so yeah it's the hard part you know just because you put the hard work in and you feel that you you're prepared it doesn't necessarily equal success And, and having that mentality as you go through the journey of it which is when when you pick up the successes along the way you know and the things that you do that give gives you the satisfaction and it's like we talk about this in a sporting context but it's like anything in life isn't it i think you know job interviews relationships there's going to be things where you do all you can to make it a success but actually you know what sometimes it just doesn't work and it's how you bounce back from that but we are sat here post career maggie world cup winner olympic gold medalist now broadcasters, authors, mums. Now you've kind of unpicked many a times, I presume, doing talks and coming on amazing podcasts like these about your career. Where do you see your life now and what do you see as a success away from rugby? Really good question. Um, I would say that I see my life now as being this continuous journey that's had some highs and some lows, I've been learning. I've been on this MBA of life where I've just had to just improve and grow and take the rough with the smooth. But I feel really pleased with where my life is. You know, I think we all look at the other side of life and go, it's greener over there. I wish mm. I wish I hadn't taken up sport, maybe done 
something else, you know. But actually, I, I, I feel really pleased with where I am right now. Life doesn't stop when you retire. I think I heard, is it Kate Richardson Wall? She might talk about retirement. I think she talks about it as an evolution day, you know, when you fully retire. And I do feel like I've evolved since retiring. Kate, and, an absolute queen. Oh, yeah. legend, goddess. She's amazing. I mean, I just think to myself, yeah, now I've I've evolved, but again I'm 39 years old. Even though I don't look it, I am. You know, thinking you don't. about. Thank you. I'm I have a shocked about, face when you said that. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about my future now. I think for all of us, you know, we're thinking about what's the next chapter, because life goes on for a very long time. And actually, how do you continue to evolve? How do you th- find other things that challenge you in different ways? But. I think what's been the key thing for me now is continue to keep learning. And I really enjoy learning and broadcasting has given me that. Learning how to be a good parent, which I don't know if I'm succeeding in yet, but um, hopefully want to grow two fantastic kids that are good people. So, yeah, I would say life is good at the moment and I want to keep it good but understand there still will be you know some rough times and some some good times but taking it as it comes and and creating your own path yeah I I, I completely agree with you when you said about life has chapters and for me that's what I've split my life into chapters when I looked back at it it was almost like school then my hockey career and then after Rio I was so fortunate to naturally slip into what I'm doing now But I suppose, Helen, for some athletes, they might not be as lucky, should I say. You know, certain doors might not open or people don't really know what they want to go into. Do you find that a lot of athletes struggle here to find themselves and have a loss of belonging? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's very common that athletes feel what is their identity because they've been known as, you know, the hockey player, the rugby player for so long. And actually who are they now and when you devote the time that you do to elite training you you know you don't have a lot of time for other things in your life I think a really valuable exercise is to understand what your values are the things that are really really important to you so how do you want to live your life in the future according to your values and that can lead you and guide you with avenues people that you meet, conversations. And if you're generally living by your values, you tend to be happy. So I would say that that's a good starting point is Mm. what what, what kind of person am I? What do I want to get out of life? You know, what are the things that are really, really important to me? And then you can then develop into what that might be. And it may be staying within the sport, giving back to what I've what I've done in whatever capacity, whether mm. it's a broadcaster like yourselves or a coach or anything like that, that you, you find your place. And I suppose away from elite sport like yourself, you know, you could have done how many years in teaching and then just think, actually, I want to, I want to try my hand at something else. So from your experience, yeah, is that know, where your mind was at? Do you know, I, I would really push people to have a change of career obviously I've done it and I'm not saying it's an easy decision you know you have to take finances and family and all those things into consideration but actually it gave such a breath of fresh air for me Mm. I've been doing something for a long time I enjoyed it if somebody said to me I was never going to teach again I think I'd be very sad but actually as a sports psychologist I still feel I'm an educator Mm. I still feel I'm passionate about performance and teaching ultimately is a performance too you're still trying to get the best out of pupils just like I am trying to get the best out of athletes so I actually thought I was switching into this completely different career, but there are so many parallels with teaching and and being a sports psychologist. So I feel that the experience that I've had from that has really helped me in what I'm doing now. 
that life experience of working with different people, tricky parents in schools, you know, children who are not fulfilling their potential, children who are exceeding. It's all actually related to performance. Very similar to athletes, yeah. Yeah. Are you talking about the red roses there? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, just joking. (laughs) And we could talk about success, winning mindset forever because there is no one answer, I guess. And like you said, if we could bottle it up and sell it, we would be absolute billionaires. But thank you both for your time today. It's been a fascinating chat. It's been so much fun. And all I can say is thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quack. The producer is Shira Kilgallen and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and Sarah Mockford. For more women's sport content from The Telegraph, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash women's sport. Hold up. 